When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. changing climate brings risks of all sorts and uncertainty at every turn. A growing number of startups is tackling that, feeding reams of climate data into economic models, and investors want in on the insights. And Sweden has quite a lot of billionaires, but there's not the same resentment of them that you see elsewhere. There's not even a hefty wealth tax anymore. We ask whether there's a lesson there for how other countries deal with their super-rich. First, for decades, there's been a separatist movement brewing in Canada. Quebec, a mostly French-speaking province, has held two referendums on secession, amid fears it will be assimilated into the rest of the English-speaking country. But a new breakaway movement now has even more traction than that of the Québécois, this time in Canada's west. Wexit is the name given to the latest successionist movement here in Canada. Jen Gerson has been writing about Wexit for The Economist. Right now, it's a fairly fringe movement which hopes to see the west of Canada separate from the rest of the nation. So where is this this Wexit sentiment centered? What's the area like? It's centered in Alberta. It's high prairie, high plain. If you go, you know, an hour west of where I live right now, you run into beautiful Rocky Mountains. And if you drive an hour east of where I am right now, you drive straight into endless prairie and sky. It's a young province. It's a province that's been growing at a fairly phenomenal rate for years, largely thanks to the oil and gas sector. It's also the center of the oil and gas sector uh, here in Canada. The median age, I think, right now is uh, 36, which means it's younger than the rest of the country. And it's uh, one of the wealthiest parts of the the country as well. Until recently, I think the average household income was about $90,000 Canadian per year, which was phenomenally high. Okay, so it sounds as if people in Alberta have it pretty good, that the state is fairly dynamic. What what are their grievances? Well, they did have it pretty good until a lot of the foundations of that wealth and prosperity collapsed under it. And that was, of course, the, the, the global oil price. In 2014, the price of oil collapsed, and with it, a lot of uh, the province's main industry Right now, Alberta mostly produces both conventional uh, gas, natural gas, but its its main and most uh, famous uh, export is bitumen. It's it's the uh, thick crude that gets literally mined from the tar sands or the oil sands in the far north of the province. And um, there's there's a there's a high degree of alienation and dissatisfaction with the way that the country is being governed from central Canada, and a real sense um, going back really to the history of the province that. 
Alberta is almost a colony within a colony. It's it's only use to the rest of the country is to be extracted from, whether it's grain or it's 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 wealth or it's uh, oil and gas resources is, is is to be extracted from the province for the benefit of people in other parts, more populous parts of the country. That is sort of the root of the grievance that that Albertans have always had here. So how does Alberta fit into the national politics? Do they feel like politicians are paying attention to the things that they care about? No, and that is actually one of the main tension points that Alberta is facing. For example, take uh, the anti-pipeline campaigns coming out of both the United States and across um, North America, um, fights against Keystone XL. Well, you know, the province that was overwhelmingly hit by that was Alberta. Fights against the Northern Gateway Pipeline, which would have traveled between northern Alberta and north of BC to the Pacific Ocean. You know, shutting down that pipeline uh, hurt Alberta's uh, ability to get its crude out of the province. And additionally, what you see with the success of the Liberal government in Ottawa right now is a government that is really focused on on trying to burnish its bona fides on on climate change issues and attempting to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that is just in stark contrast to the reality of Alberta's main trade. And do you have a sense of how widespread this this pro-Wexit sentiment is in Alberta? In, in Alberta, recent polls have found that as many as a third of the residents here believe that they would be better off outside of Canada than inside of Canada. I mean, that's a pretty phenomenally high response to that question. It's mostly a social media movement at this point. It's still a pretty fringe movement. But the owners of, for example, the Wexit Facebook page said that they went from a couple of thousand followers prior to the federal election to almost a quarter of a million um, followers on their page within really only a couple of days of Justin Trudeau being reelected. I mean, how much does the Wexit idea come up in everyday life? You know, are, are there rallies? There are now rallies almost every other week popping up around the province. You know, there have been rallies in Calgary now, rallies in Red Deer. These rallies are attracting a thousand potentially 2,000 people, depending on the size of the venues. It's right now still very much a, a movement that is confined to social media angst, social media anger, but it's it seems to have a lot of grassroots energy that I'm not sure can be entirely dismissed or ignored as insignificant. And do other parts of the country feel a, a similar grievance? Well, interestingly, I think that there's a parallel between what's happening in Alberta and what's traditionally happened in Quebec. Now, Quebec is the French-speaking part of the country where there has been a much more established political succession movement. Quebec has held two referendums on the question of whether or not to succeed from Canada, one in 1980 and one in 1995. Very famously, the one in 1995 failed by a very small margin. So it sounds like it's really more of a a kind of protest movement rather than a genuine separatist movement. Is, Is that right? Right now, I think that it is fair to say that it is a protest movement. It is a movement that reflects an extraordinary amount of anger and grievance in Western Canada. But what's scary about Wexit is that, you know, nobody took Brexit all that seriously either until they had to. You know, everybody thought that Donald Trump was a joke until he wasn't. There is a weird populist far-right vibe that that Wexit is drawing from. And I think that that frightens a lot of politicians, both inside Alberta and outside Alberta, because, you know, it's almost like you there's an energy to some of these politics that if you don't channel it appropriately into something mainstream and, and, and effective, it can bite you in the butt. You can lose control of it. Jen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me.
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. As the impacts of climate change intensify, the market for specialist climate change-focused companies is growing. Technology remains the biggest area of investment. But this year has seen a string of acquisitions in businesses whose output isn't clean power or electric vehicles, but rather information. These startups want to help customers manage risk by predicting the impact of a changing climate. One such company can trace its origins back to a huge storm, a superstorm, in fact. Winds now at 90 miles per hour, and this storm is so big, so vast, 60 million Americans will feel its power. Tonight, our extreme weather... So in late October 2012, Hurricane Sandy started to, to batter America's Atlantic seaboard. Guy Scriven is The Economist's climate risk correspondent. And states up and down uh, the coast endured uh, really severe damage. The road into the seafront town is completely submerged. Some of the worst effects were felt in New York City. That, that, that involved kind of subways and uh, road tunnels and in Manhattan being flooded. Stock exchange was closed. The city shut down and cut off for two days and counting. Hundreds of thousands of people were, were left without electricity and, and, and 40 people in the city died mostly by drowning. And it, it was clear then that New York, in spite of all its kind of wealth and power, uh, just wasn't prepared for an extreme weather event like Hurricane Sandy, and that the the costs of unpreparedness were kind of were bigger than most people had ever imagined. In the meantime, over in in California, an academic called uh, Emily Mazzucarati was was kind of watching this all unfold, and and like the rest of the country, was shocked by the, the the scale of the devastation. And within a few weeks, she had founded a, a startup called 427, which, which would kind of go on to offer climate risk analytics to investors and, and large corporations. So the idea of her startup was to help mitigate the effects of disasters like what happened in New York by providing decision makers, policymakers with better data? Yeah, that's right. The starting point for this is, is, is usually kind of climate data. There are large kind of government data sets that get produced, which tell you how much the sea level will rise or how hot, you know, certain bits of the world will be in, in 20, 30 years. And, and what 427 does is combine this with economic models and helps put a kind of dollar value on the kind of assets at risk for, for, for businesses and, and for investors as well. How does that work in practice, though? What's an example of the kind of work they've done with companies? So it will be something like a, a real estate company will need to kind of work out how many of its uh, properties are at risk of flooding and how severe that flooding would be. And then they'd use that information to kind of work out adaptation methods. So maybe they'll build a seawall, maybe they'll have to rise the, raise the building, maybe they'll put the kind of electrical generators on the top floor rather than the bottom floor so they don't get wiped out in a flood. And so big companies see this as a useful product? Yes, uh, yeah, increasingly uh, kind of big, big companies are, are, are really interested in, in climate kind of analytics. And I, I guess the, the, the biggest kind of signifier of this 
is that 427 uh, recently was acquired by Moody's, a big credit rating agency. And, and, and that's a signal that big corporations are, are, and financial firms are, are starting to take this much more seriously. I mean, that's obviously a big coup for 427, but what do you think Moody's saw as the, the value of the purchase? What are they planning to do with the company? Well, I mean, there are probably kind of two things Moody's wants to do. The first thing is to, is to turn the kind of climate analytics on their own books. So, for instance, Moody's uh, released a report recently using 427's analysis to look at the local government debt in the U.S. and how, how much of it was at risk of, of heat stress. And the reason that's important is because when, you know, an area gets very hot, that will change various factors. So you may have to kind of pay more for air conditioning. It also affects worker productivity as they get kind of hot and bothered. And that will then result in, in, in having an effect on the credit worthiness of, of these local governments and, and, and municipalities that it's Moody's job to assess. So Moody's, in just the same way that a private company would, can use the data that 427 provides to get a better long-term view of creditworthiness of local government. Absolutely, yeah. Investing in, in, in a climate analytics firm at the moment is also kind of sensible in the sense that we're, we're expecting much more government regulation to come in, encouraging corporations and, and financial firms to think about their climate risk. And that suggests that the likes of 427 will get much more business in the future. Surely 427 has competitors in this kind of big data space, though. Yeah, very much so. This is, this is a kind of growing industry, although, although it remains small at the moment. And we've seen a kind of spree of, of acquisitions in this space. So uh, uh, Wells Fargo invested in uh, the Climate Service, which is a, an, another similar outfit. A Hamburg-based outfit called CoFirm was bought up by PwC, which is a kind of consultancy MSCI and an equity index maker stepped up Carbon Delta again earlier this year. And so uh, we're seeing a, a lot of new players join the climate service space and a lot of financial firms buying them up too. We're used to the idea of digital startups moving fast and breaking things in, in sectors like takeout delivery. But the, the kind of sector that we're talking about here, I mean, th- these are essentially life and death decisions in some cases. Is there a risk that, that these companies could actually make matters worse if they got things wrong? Yeah, I mean, one thing people worry about is, is the kind of culture clash where lots of these uh, climate service startups come from Silicon Valley, where experimenting and, and, and tinkering with software is encouraged. The cautionary tale here is one concern, which is a another climate service uh, analytics company and that started off analyzing earthquakes. A recent New York Times article documented the problems at the company, which included things like, like clients complaining about missing data and, and software updates changing the estimated cost of damages. And news reports like this are a real worry for many in the industry because it it might kind of discredit a, a, a nascent climate service sector, which is really very much needed in the corporate world and the embrace of which is kind of much overdue. Guy, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Sweden has one of the highest rates of billionaires in the world, one for every quarter million people. Between them, those billionaires' fortunes add up to a quarter of Sweden's GDP. The only places that you find more super wealthy are tax havens like Monaco or captured economies like Russia's. 
But despite that, the phenomenally well-off are fairly well-regarded. Nowhere are billionaires incredibly popular, but if there's one place in the world where they are fairly popular, or at least not despised, it's probably Sweden. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer at The Economist. It has lots of billionaires for such a small country. So, I mean, these things are quite hard to measure. But in terms of billionaires per million people, Sweden is is right at the top. And if you look at cross-country measures of wealth inequality, again, Sweden is is right at the top. And so how do Swedish billionaires avoid the, the disdain and the distrust that their counterparts elsewhere suffer? There's a few reasons, I suppose. One, I guess, is that they, broadly speaking, behave themselves. So there's a perception generally among people you talk to in Sweden, which is that these people who've made vast sums through companies like Spotify or Volvo or Skanska or H&M, all those kind of familiar companies, have done so not by exploiting ordinary people and paying poverty wages within Sweden, but by striding out across the global economy and, and becoming an export giant. So the way that the billionaires make their money is kind of seen as okay. The other reason is that unlike in, say, America or in parts of China or or Hong Kong or whatever, billionaires are not known for flouting their wealth. So if you go to a nice-ish restaurant in Stockholm, it's perfectly possible that at the table next to you there will be someone who is worth billions and billions of dollars who's just eating next to you. And you don't see lots of fancy cars and all that kind of stuff. So it's just that, the the fact that wealthy Swedes don't flaunt their wealth that's protected them from the kind of populist attacks that you see elsewhere. I think that's right. And a lot of these families who are extremely powerful have large interests in, in, in big banks and telecoms companies and so on. A lot of that money has been put into big foundations, which give you know vast sums every year, particularly to things like research. So they're seen as being quite charitable. But I, I think in terms of why there isn't this clamor for a big wealth tax or a billionaire tax or whatever, I think that's at least partly because Sweden did try this. I mean, it, it had a big wealth tax in place for close to 100 years, and they basically concluded that it didn't work. What do you, what do you mean by that? In what way didn't it work? So it came in shortly before World War One, and then was progressively increased during the kind of first bit of the 20th century and then up towards the sort of late 70s, early 80s, where it hit its peak. So at that point, if you were particularly wealthy, you'd be paying a wealth tax of in the region of 4% per year. So that's quite high. That's 4% of your net worth being handed over to the government each year. And this created various problems. So for instance, it meant that you had to have a very high rate of return on any investments you did make, because anything below 10 to 12% rate of return, that's really quite high, was going to mean that in overall terms, once you took into account taxes and inflation and all that kind of stuff, you would be losing money. And then the other thing was that, you know, around the kind of 70s, 80s, you start to see globalization take off. And basically, it becomes a lot easier for these extremely rich people to to move their money out of Sweden. And you do see this happening in the 70s and 80s. The founder of IKEA most famously moves in the, in the mid-70s. So what happened to the wealth tax in the end then? So even at its height, it raised a really tiny amount of revenue, like less than half a percent of GDP. And in the mid-2000s, there was this kind of bipartisan move both to abolish the inheritance tax, which took place in 2005, and then to abolish the wealth tax a couple of years later. And basically, no one objected to this at all. I mean, even the kind of communist party was broadly in favor of the reform. So is there a a moral here for people in other countries who might advocate harsher treatment of their billionaires? 
I suppose the moral is different whether you're thinking about the US or whether you're thinking about somewhere like Sweden. So the experience that someone like Iceland has in the aftermath of the financial crisis, they introduced a wealth tax. The only reason why they were really able to do that is because at the same time, they had strong capital controls in place to stop their currency from collapsing. So really, unless you are willing to do that as well, it's quite hard to to have a wealth tax. I think if there was one country where these kind of side effects wouldn't be seen, it would be America, simply because America has a kind of financial infrastructure that is global. People want to live in America. People really, really don't want to leave. And so it has this kind of magnetic pull that probably no other country has. But the experience, certainly, of the wealth taxes that have been implemented globally suggests that they're quite difficult to enforce. Thanks very much for your time, Callum. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.